What is up, Internet? Welcome to Season 2 of Self-Defense from All Angles, Episode Number 2. This week we have on the show my friend Anna. She is a specialist in disaster management. She started working with the government and now teaches at a university here in Alberta about this topic. This was a fantastic conversation. We talked about the pillars of disaster management. We talk about what you should have in your kit for the 72 hours. We talk about the second disaster, which is donations and I share my own personal anecdotes of what happens after our fire. We really hammer on the importance of community. And if you've been following me for long enough, you know that I really believe that community is one of the most effective forms of self-protection. And it just doubles down on that and explains how community is so important. And of course, on the Patreon story, Anna shares a anecdote of when she was working an actual disaster for the Alberta government. And she talks about some factors of collateral damage that most people don't think about when it comes to disaster management. I highly recommend you check out the show. It was fantastic. I learned a lot and she busts some myths that are that surround disaster management that I think are really important things to know. I know I didn't know them, so maybe you don't either. And of course, don't forget, if you are looking for someone to come and talk to your people wherever they are about violence prevention, conflict management, personal protection, get a hold of us, randykinglive.com or 8020cms.com. We will come to your site or teach online. Let's get to the show. What is up, Internet? Welcome to the second episode of Season 2 of Self-Defense from All Angles, the podcast where we try to break the echo chamber of self-defense. We are here talking to people who work in crisis management, violence prevention, but people that are not necessarily martial arts coaches. So I really think this show is important because we're getting more raw information about protection and crisis management and uh, all those things that happen outside of just kick, punch, choke, right? So because self-defense is a much larger animal than just the physical skills. This week on the show, we have my friend, Anna. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I really appreciate it Uh, because your job is super interesting and I'm really excited to talk to you. When you reached out, like, I've never been on a podcast. I'm like, goddamn perfect. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So Anna, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? So my name is Anna. I've been working disaster and emergency management for well over 10 years. So you might be like, what is disaster and emergency management? Doing a normal emergency, you think of a house fire. So that means like say police, ambulance, fire shows up and takes care of it. What happens if that entire block, neighborhood, city, it's on fire. That's where emergency management shows up. But we are the ones that can help coordinate the response that's happening to when things really go sideways. It's really, it's a disaster. We're trying to coordinate to protect life, safety, environment, property, to make sure that things don't progress and get even worse. So that's uh, that's my job. So I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I've done it with the nonprofit, with the government. Uh, I teach in the NAIT Diploma Program for Disaster and Emergency Management, and I also do uh, some consulting so to help municipalities and different organizations uh, create their emergency management plans and training, lots of training. So yeah, that's a little bit about me and what disaster emergency management is. That's awesome. So if I could just boil that down, what you do is the macro version of emergency planning, not the micro version. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. So for me, because I had a house fire in 2019, all the stuff around the house fire, that wouldn't be you. But if that fire spread to other buildings or if infrastructure was affected, that kind of stuff. So like earthquake 
earthquake, tornado, that sort of stuff? That's exactly it. So uh, some of the stuff I've worked on is the Fort McMurray fire in 2016, Southern Alberta floods of 2013. Just, you know, it's Alberta. So lots of fires, lots of fires. <laughs> so many fires. Um, but lots of flooding, lots of flooding, lots of fires. Emergency management is when one, whoever deals, it's supposed to deal with it. So one fire, it overwhelms whoever's supposed to be dealing with that one fire. That's when uh, disaster emergency management really kicks in. And that's when your emergency start activating. So um, during COVID, for example, that's another, it's obviously a disaster, right? It's a worldwide pandemic. So that's a little bit more of the business continuity and crisis management side, because we're trying to make sure that um, things are continuing to work, but it's no longer a normal situation. It's overwhelming things. So back uh, during when COVID first hit, I worked with Alberta Environment that uh, we're regulating water, for example. So now we're trying to think business continuity and crisis. Uh, What happens if this uh, pandemic back then, we didn't know anything about COVID, if you remember back early 2020. So what happens is this is so bad that we no longer have drinking water operators able to process our water. That's really interesting. I think this is... That's why I'm glad to have you on the show, because this is something that people don't think about, right? When we think about emergency planning, we think about the bug out bag and the, you know, like have three days worth of this or that. And very, like we say, prepper type mentality, survivalist, whatever you want to call it. Um, And we've had one on the show. If you haven't heard, go to episode like, 14 or 15 a season one rogue preparedness with morgan morgan rogue she had a great tips for beginning to get ready for disaster when it comes to what you do is there anything you would like people to know or have or or be ready with like what would make your job easier especially when you're dealing with large numbers of people yeah on um, disaster preparedness it's the number one thing um having community involvement and personal involvement is uh, the best way to create a resilient community and research has shown that the more uh, prepared and commu- like uh, resilient a community is, the better it will be prepared. So get to know your neighbors. Like, just honestly, like li- really little steps. Who are they? <laughs> <laughs> Talk to them. So like, you know, like 88-year-old grandma lives down the street and suddenly you have no power and you know she relies on stuff. Right. You can go help her. You're If you are an able-bodied individual, you can go. That's the kind of community involvement that is needed in a disaster because let's be honest you will be the first responder in an emergency when vancouver earthquake hits it's going to be the people there that are going to be the first responders if you know like uh, gertrude down the state like down the street needs some help like you you are able to provide that um like during large things like katrina for example the communities that were able to uh that that had that sense of community are able to bounce back better just yeah and having of course the disaster preparedness that you hear about all the time having your food uh, water being able to be self-reliant for 72 hours obviously very important and it's something that we do talk about a lot that emergency preparedness but honestly like um, what we see in research is get to know your neighbors have that sense of community your your local government wants you to know about their emergency plans this is not a government conspiracy they want you to know they want you to be active (laughs) they want to share that because you know what that's how we build community resilience and community resilience is how we're able to be better prepared and respond to and recover from a disaster i know you've been focused on community and i think it's so important when i'm teaching courses one of the things i say is have a strong community going to the very micro level to what i teach for like self-defense and Mm self-protection is if you have good self-worth good boundaries and a good community, the odds of you getting selected by a predator drop exponentially. 
because people, uh, predators especially go towards marginalized communities, places where people don't care, places where people can disappear and nobody knows, right? So Gertrude down the street, if you don't know her and she drops out of a heart attack, you might not know she's down until you smell the body, right? So so other than getting to know your neighbors, because I really believe that a strong sense of community is like number one for self-protection, especially living in the age of impending nuclear threat and all the stress that's happening on the planet right now. Like, what do you recommend to do to get to know your neighbors? Like you said, like, just go talk to them but is there anything else you suggest to people on how to do this do you get any and also the second question do you get any resilience to like i don't want to go meet my neighbors like when you talk to people like Ugh, i don't want to talk to anybody in my apartment building that is a really tricky question because yeah um join community groups Mo like here in edmonton we have community leagues join your community league right join if you don't want to talk to people in person at least join a facebook group right so that way you're a little bit more aware of what's going on around i know like in my community community league Facebook page or city councilors very active in it so just get to know that kind of stuff that what any kind of events happening in the community like uh, even if you just attend you're able to get some information for example the second week of May is emergency preparedness week oh lots of events lots of events always happen like in Edmonton and throughout Canada lots of events happen and you don't have to talk to anyone but there's going to be information there right like uh, Edmonton usually has like get ready in the park in Horlock Park Calgary there's disaster rally happening too like lots of like uh, St. Albert does events like little communities big communities they all do events you don't need to talk to people there's brochures take them home but at least you'll know what is going on in your community you maybe like you can start getting to start build that buffer for emergency planning week is that something that happens like is it international is that just canada it's in canada a lot different different countries do different things like i don't i actually don't know if i if the u.s does emergency preparedness week but emergency preparedness week is the second week of may every single year all throughout canada where uh communities large and small so uh like uh, from your local government all the way to the national government which is a it is a public safety initiative actually it's to be able to create that information and awareness about what happens in an emergency who does what because right. uh, the government might not always be there to save you well and i think that's so not to get too far swing the other way but it's it's always good to hope for the best and prepare for the worst right so the you government won't help. My job, Randy. <laughs> that, is that your job pretty much <laughs> So first thing I want to say is to my international listeners, because we're all over the world, people listen to this, look up if there's an emergency planning week in your community, in your country, in whatever, because I didn't know that was a thing. And now I'm going to attend it this year because it seems like something uh, smart. Going on the can't really rely on X amount of people in these environments. I think that's something good to think about, but not something you should base your entire life off of because you're going to get a little bit too uh, crazy or paranoid. But I, I do like the self-reliance part. I do like the, you know, like, like you mentioned earlier, you are the first responder. You are the person who is going to be there first, right? When we had the fire happen, I tried to put it out with a jug of water. It didn't work. It was already too big. And then it was okay. Then the next step was get to the fire alarm. Then it was go knock on doors when people woke up, et cetera, et cetera. I want you to listeners, how important is it for people to have an emergency plan, like a fire, escape plan or a or any kind of disaster plan like how important is disaster planning for the regular person absolutely very important and if you go to any of the emergency preparedness week events you will get um lots of templates brochures and ideas on what to do to create your own emergency preparedness plan so essentially how do you get out of your community like if your house is on fire how do you get out what should you have say your entire like little like cul-de-sac is on fire like so you, that means like your way in and out is gone. 
what happens if something happens, like you're at home and something happens with, with the kids? Like, how do you get there if you have no car, for example? We are, mm. we live in a very car-driven society, right? So thinking about all those things, having hard copies of certain documents, right? All of that stuff, it's part of your emergency preparedness plan. Having cash, say the power goes out, say we like, I don't know, like we get like a, like a solar wave or something. And now there's, you can't use your, your tab. We are <laughs> We all love our tap, but now there's no tap, like having cash on hand. So a lots of lots of different places you can go to get all of these resources. Public Safety Canada does provide a lot of really great uh, places to be able to access how to create your own per personal preparedness plan. FEMA also has a lot of that, like any national government will have your like uh, personal preparedness safe information for you to be able to access. Well, I think that's super important. So like funny story about the fire is in the old building we were in there, the fire alarm used to go off a lot, like all the time. And they made my daughter a little bit paranoid because my daughter's a planner. So we actually two, I think it was two or three weeks awkwardly close. We came up with a emergency kit for our rabbit. So we're like, we should have like a little bag with food and litter and whatever. And just in case something bad happens. And I cannot, I cannot stress how quickly we had that bag, how quickly the rabbit was in the bag. And that's the only reason the rabbit survived. We didn't have a plan for the lizard. The lizard died. We didn't have a plan for the fish. The fish died. We definitely went mammal priority, but the, the, just having that little plan, just having that repetition of like, okay, this is what we're going to do in this situation. It literally saved that rabbit's life. Absolutely. Most people don't really understand that just having that written down or having even talked about it increases the chance that you'll actually do it. Um, even studies have shown that if you listen and read the little pamphlet in, in your in, when you go on an airplane that nobody listens to, everybody tunes out, you're more likely to survive. If you have a plan to know how to get out of your neighborhood, you're more likely to get out. Like all of these things, they're they get promoted for a reason. And the reason is because it works. <laughs> yeah. I use the airplane analogy all the time. When we talk about self-defense, we talk about freezing. <clears throat> your brain gets overwhelmed by, you know, certain things that happen in a, a, a high impact event in your life, right? The reason to do the safety dance, even seeing it once, even seeing it one time under stress, your brain has something to go to, right? Because you're not, you're not in your critical thinking part of your brain under stress. You are in your habit and ritual part of your brain yeah and actually um it's funny to do say that too because part of my job um is like well not with nate but like as a consultant is to create exercises for people so um, as a legislated mandate a lot of organizations have to exercise their plans and how the heck do you do that you create you practice like mm. that's how you were able to improve so when things do happen you're like oh wait i I've done this before. I can do this. You practice for the worst because that way it starts like you create those training wheels and you're right. When things do happen, you're able to actually act out on it. So um, when I was with the government, so uh, Fort McMurray happened in 2016 and uh, every year, again, by legislative mandate, the province has to do an exercise. And that year, we the, the big exercise was actually a big wildfire that caused an, an evacuation of a major city. So here we go, right? So you apply those lessons and you improve. But the thing is about improving, right? A couple, like a year before, a year before, a few months before Katrina hit, there was Hurricane Pam. You don't know about Hurricane Pam because it was not real. It was an exercise. People all over FEMA, all over the parishes in Louisiana, New Orleans, practiced a category four hitting straight on New Orleans. Everything was very realistic. Flooding, levees breaking, hospitals, 
everything, none of the lessons were applied. And it, everything that happened in the scenario that Hurricane Pam actually happened. And people are like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, like practicing is important, but also applying what you've learned is important. <laughs> well, I agree. And again, going back to this being a self-defense podcast, we talk about that all the time, right? You can't talk your way through a physical skill. You have to actually do the thing, right? So whether if, visualize, if visualization is your best option, then visualize it. You're going to get at least some kind of, I like the term training wheels. That's going to put the training wheels into your head. I'm definitely stealing that. But also like being aware that bad stuff can happen. I think that's where a lot of people, they hit that psychological part that freeze in their brain because they don't think this stuff is going to happen to them. I remember after the fire, habit ritual, I grab my water bottle and my laptop because my life's work is on my laptop. And every day I leave the house, I grab my water bottle. So my family made fun of me. They were like, special water bottle? Why did you save that? I'm like, I didn't save it. It's just when I leave the house, I always grab it. So I just went into habit and ritual because I didn't have anything else. When we look at this, and I'm going to say entitlement, not in a bad way, but we live in a world where we expect service is now we have DoorDash and we have like oh my god the uber driver delivers my food to me for my phone was four minutes late i'm gonna complain right like we live in this place where we're flying through the sky like gods we're like mm, they have bad movies like it's we're insane as a people what are some of the services i think that people should have you think that people should avoid during disaster management like if you're not hurt going to a hospital is not a good idea, right? Is there things you suggest that people do or like a list of priorities they should go through in a disaster? In a disaster, if you are ever in, say, say you, you're listening from the West Coast and you know the big one is coming. Right. And know that if you have a broken arm on the side of the road, don't take it personally when the fire department drives past you. Um, <laughs> they are trained to go to like to ignore the five-year-old with a broken arm on the side of the road because they got to deal with that big building down the street. And even though the guidance is 72 hours, it might be more. So make sure that you are going to be okay with that. If you're an able-bodied person, make sure that you're going to be able to know where to get your water, where to get some food. If you don't have a kit, um, make sure that you have a way. We're all very reliant on these phones. Yes. Right? Know some numbers. Because <laughs> um, we have that Facebook, I'm safe button. You're not going to have that. Have a plan. You brought up a good point with your bunny. Know what you're going to do with your pets. When I worked for Fort McMurray uh, during, the, during the fire, there were a lot of pets left behind. Sure. A lot of pets needed to get rescued. And honestly, like you're not just talking about the cute bunnies. You're talking about people's like 15 feet anacondas or whatever it was. The, trust me, the firefighters don't want to deal with your 15 foot snake. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. So make sure you have you think about your, your pets. And when, if you need emergency shelter, because you have nowhere else to go, they don't allow pets. Right. That's just a, a health, it's a human safety, human uh, health hazard, right? Just kind of, there's food there. Pets aren't allowed. I think that's, I didn't even know that. Uh, we were very lucky. I have a large friend network, so I didn't really suffer too much after the fire. But, and we yeah. had insurance, so it took care of a lot of it. I didn't know they didn't allow pets in emergency shelters. That would be crazy. And especially if you like are really connected to your dog or cat, that's going to cause some extra stress on you that you don't have your animals. Absolutely. And a lot of people will refuse to evacuate because of their pets. That was a big thing. Again, look, if looking back through some major disasters here in Alberta and just like the big, big ones like Katrina again, people were 
Murphy will refuse to evacuate because they don't want to either evacuate without their pets or they right. don't have anywhere to go with their pets. So knowing what to do with uh, Fido or the cat or bunny or 15 foot snake, making sure you have a solid plan for them. <laughs> yeah. And if you're one of those people who has too many pets to carry, like it, even the rabbit in the bag that we had was still trying to get out. He's like, ah, oh, freedom. I'm outside finally. Right? <laughs> I'm like, dude, you gotta, you're going to die. <laughs> I want to go back to your thing about know some numbers. I think that's insane that people don't because we grew up in a generation where you remember numbers, but the kids don't. (laughs) That is such a good piece of advice, not even for disaster management, but also in self-defense. Because if you're in a self-defense situation, you might spend some time in handcuffs. And the first thing they do is take your phone away from you. So when they're like, you get a phone call, they don't give you your phone to make the phone call. You have to make a phone call on a public phone. So if you don't know your lawyer's number, your mom's number, your whoever's going to come bail you out of jail number, like that's bad, right? We've seen people go through uh, getting arrested after self-defense. They righteously defended themselves, but, and they're like, okay, you get a phone call. And they're like, well, can I have my phone? They're like, absolutely. No, you cannot have your phone. What are you talking about? There could be evidence on there. It's in a bag in the back. They're like, I don't know any numbers. They're like, you get the right to a phone call. That's where we stop. It's not our right to tell you what the numbers are. They're not going to look through your phone for you. So have some key numbers memorized is just, I think across the board, a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And you're right. Like I have numbers memorized, but that's because of I'm, I'm, a, I'm an elderly millennial. I, I still use the little like spinning thing on my on phones. Right. But um, most people like even other millennials, right. And Jen said definitely doesn't know any phone numbers. And right. like, that just, that's just the way that is. So make sure you have at least one number, you know, one number outside of 911. Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's such good advice. Like memorize a number, know how to dial it. Also, uh, fun fact, you should practice opening your phone when your hands are shaking because people can't even get access to their phone when they're under adrenaline. So there's a whole bunch of things, again, we take for granted, right? Like, oh, my phone will always have access. If you're in a, like you said, a solar flare and all the phones go down, now what? Like, do you even know the address of where your friend, do you know how to get there without Google Maps? Because I know a lot of people that don't, they don't know how to get anywhere. They turn their phone on, they go into robot mode and they appear. Where's the hospital? How close is the fire station? You can't Google these things. You need to know this stuff yeah and again that's where that sense of community also comes in right Right. like so like if i don't if if i'm trying to go somewhere like oh like you know why like i know like susan across the street like they may be able to help me or like whatever like uh, you may if you don't know a number at least know somebody you can physically get to that might be able to help you have a good sense of community so you can knock on your neighbor's door and be like hey remember me i'm not some random person during a disaster (laughs) like this isn't the walking dead and humans are the villain like I'm, I'm here to help you, right? I'm here to, in some way, or or, or ask for help. And then, you know, it, it's, you don't want to ask for help cold, right? Like, oh, I've never met you before, but can I use your phone? They're like, mm, I don't know. I read, I saw on the news, things are going bad. <laughs> I saw this on Dateline somewhere. <laughs> exactly. I've watched every zombie movie. Humans are not great. 72 hours. You mentioned that 72 hours was like that magic number. Why is that the suggested number? And what should people have for that 72 hours? It's a suggested number. That is the time that emergency resources are going to try their best to get to you. It might be sooner. It might not. So that's the number you have to be reliant for. So the things that you should have, say that you, uh, you're you stuck in a nice storm, the power is out, you're literally snowed in, like you should have enough water, food, can openers. Uh, people forget can opener. They buy all the cans and they forget the can opener. Right. Uh, got the can opener. Make, again, some cash just in case because there's no power. You can't tap your way out of it. Right. Blankets. 
just some big like candles, either a crank radio or a battery radio with fresh bat an extra battery because uh most people forget to check their emergency kits. Yeah. A good way that uh you're supposed to check them is during daylight savings time because that's twice a year, right? Oh. Um so that way you check, make sure the batteries still work, the food hasn't expired, uh the like mice haven't eaten through your blankets, uh, <laughs> candles something to entertain yourself with because again we're very reliant on technology like just mm -hmm. turn on netflix like i'll just do my wordle like whatever <laughs> um, you won't have that so get a book get a board game get something and candles to be able to see your way through things just literally the basic things that you would go through in a day water drinking water and cooking water too in case you have none and they've like the water's gone out toilet paper as we've learned from 2020 we <laughs> toilet, paper. <laughs> toilet paper apparently very important very very important very important <laughs> Don't forget your pets. Uh, remember, I think ooh, like your cats will eat you or something like that. So <laughs> make sure that they don't go hungry. Uh, just basic, the basic things that you will need to survive. So like emerge like papers in case you need to uh, like copies of your driver's license, right. copies of uh, your insurance. If you can't remember the numbers, have them written down. <laughs> so somewhere where you can get to them, all of that kind of stuff. I think the two biggest pullouts I want to repeat in there for the listeners is number one, make daylight savings time. If your country observes that, make that your time to check your emergency preparedness stuff. I think that's, that's a good link. Obviously you're a pro, so that's why you suggest it, but I've never heard that before. And I think it's very intelligent to have that. And the other thing that Morgan talked about is that entertainment thing. People, they just plan for it. Then they're just going to sit there bored and cranky. Like, like ha especially a young children, right? Like you got to keep them distracted, especially during a disaster. The, from a person that's been in two different house fires uh, in his life, the stress level that comes from that, just like the, the overarching stress of it is so much. If you don't have distractions, you don't have comforts. If you don't have food for your pet and your cats meowing your face off while you're going through a fire, like you're not going to be your best self, right? You're not going to be optimal human at this time because just there's so many levels of stress. I think, yeah, I love the checking and I, I think it needs to be repeated a lot to people that don't live in this world is don't just plan for survival, plan for living, right? Plan for living a couple Ooh. of days. Yeah, yeah. Like, don't just be like, food, water, shelter, we're good. Like, right, we're good. Like, let's, you're going to be cranky AF, man. Like, uh, get a book, at least a book. And yeah, like things for kids. So if you have a baby, have formula. Formula that's not expired. Uh, all of that kind of stuff. What are some things you've seen or heard that are like myths in the disaster management? Is there anything like that in your field? Absolutely. And we actually do talk about that in some of our intro courses. They are open studies, so you don't even need to part of our diploma program if people are interested in taking oh, some of those courses. Cool. Disaster myths. There's lots of them, like looting. People always think there's going to be lots of looting. Better arm yourself to protect yourself. History, research, studies, there's not a lot of looting. Really? There's a lot of community support. People, instead of, if they are looting, it's because they're really like, grandma needs her insulin. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, that's a myth that I believe 100% that looting is going to happen. And that's literally like my number one thing. Everybody's like, I'm going to go get this. I'm like, I have to go to a pharmacy. I take a thyroid pill that keeps me alive. So I'm going to go rob the fuck out of that place as fast as possible. <laughs> right? So I'm planning, I'm planning to loot, 
but that's because I, they're only giving me X amount of survival pills, right? So uh, I think that's really interesting. What else? That there's going to be so massive social disorder or panic. There's going to be lots of panic. And you know what? Again, history and studies have shown us that people like even uh, look at 9-11. You would think, oh, shit, like there's a plane that just crashed into our building. Panic. There wasn't. There was right. a very orderly evacuation of the building. People helping people. Right, right? right. That is what you see. And that is what you see in disasters. During Fort McMurray, we saw Alberta strong, Fort McMurray strong, people helping people. There was no panic. Right. There was a, like frustration trying to evacuate. Yes, but there was no panic. There's again that sense of community. Southern Alberta floods. Yes, people were scared. They were like nervous. They were like, my house. Uh, but there wasn't panic. Right. People don't pan like if as long as they have clear communication, people are able to speak, tell them exactly the situation. This is what is happening. This is what we need to do. People don't panic. You don't get that mass panic that you see in the movies. Oh, like again, right. like think 9-11. That's the best example, I think, right? You would have right. thought in the movies it would have been massive panic. Yeah. That's not what we saw. It was a calm evacuation of building and people helping people. Interesting. So again, going back to that sense of community, so important. I don't know if there's any other myths, but I just want to kind of point out here from the first two I've heard is the myth is people become terrible under these events. And what you're seeing is people actually unite under these events. Absolutely. Yeah. We create that, like my, we create almost like a mini instant micro community of like, like we are on the first tower, like, Oh my God. But like the elevators are out, but Bill's in a wheelchair. People help build down the steep, like uh, carry like the stuff to help build down the stairs. Like right. people help the evacuation. And then in commute, like in real communities, right. You're like, Gertrude like is not going to be able to get out of her house like we need to go help her like that sense of community yeah. th that really comes through and shines right like again look at the southern Alberta floods after the, that massive one in a hundred year flood decimated certain communities what happened there was community everyone from Calgary came and helped with the cleanup right. self-organized volunteer groups came really and helped oh yeah like it was like a thing like calgary city of calgary had to set up things to be like this is what you need to do if you're coming in here because this this water had sewage in it right get that people helping people community well that reignites my faith in humanity a little bit i definitely <laughs> i definitely lean towards that all i do is read studies of horrific things happening to people and it's nice to hear some good news in that with especially with disaster management and i mean there is anger but the anger comes much afterwards right? right the anger will like there's always the anger that will come after something big for McMurray there was that there was obviously anger but that doesn't happen in the immediate after during the response there's I guess I should rewind so we in sure. emergency management we have a few pillars we have many like preparedness so that's where we do our training and plans mitigation where that's where we build our like say uh flooding mitigation right, right. so things like oh fire breaks for wildfire etc response that's what hits the fan response, and then yeah, your response. recovery so that's yeah. when you're trying to like 
go back to where you used to be. Sure. So in the response, you don't really have the anger. You have the community, the sense of rebuilding. Let's try to like help Joe back up onto his feet, but like all of that stuff, like Joe, like is looking for his bunnies. Let's help. Like, let's see what we can do. If the anger comes in the recovery phase. That is so interesting to me. It makes sense. And when you walk it out logically, I'm like, yeah, duh. But it's just not what I think people would expect in those situations, right? It's again, we're thinking the disaster movie, the everybody's going to turn every man for themselves, kind of push him down. Like, oh, there's a guy in a wheelchair. Sucks to be you wheels. See you later. Right? Like, <laughs> It just, it seems like that's what it is. And and you're seeing from the, the studies and the information, you're just not, you're just not seeing that. That's exactly it. You don't see that. What we see again, like in large, in small disasters, I'm sure you even saw this after your own fire, right? Yeah. People want help. Yeah. People are like, oh my God. Like, and you see that in the larger scale too. Like you see all of that, like uh, people like opening their homes for McMurray. They're like, uh, again, as part of the government response, like people right. are like right. one time somebody called called our emergency social services team, which is the ones in charge of putting people somewhere like with emergency shelter. And like, oh, I have like uh, 30 people here, but I'm out of houses. And we're like, who are you? <laughs> somebody that literally took it up on themselves to uh to start billeting people in different homes right when i worked in more local responses here in edmonton like uh we would see like somebody would post the like one thing on facebook like little sally just lost her home and now she has no shirts to wear tomorrow right. to school and the next thing little sally knew they she would have like a hundred three hundred shirts because the community was like oh my god that won't do <laughs> right so and I think I agree. And so from my fire, one of the one of my sayings now is not all help is helpful in that if there isn't people, if people don't know what the plan is and they just help by default, the amount of toothpaste and socks that we had was unnecessary for any human for their whole lifetime. But people just helped without asking. Right. And so not all help is helpful in this. So what are your thoughts Absolutely. on that? That is actually a huge thing. Donation management. So uh, Donation for everyone management. listening, yeah. please, please, uh, if you want to help after a disaster, if you're not impacted, but you're seeing people from like, I don't know, like rural bill, wherever, and you want to help, don't send them things. Give them money. Yeah. <laughs> That is what they need. That if you want to help, like don't know where to send the money, send it to Red Cross. Red Cross is always there helping out and big things that make the news like that. Donation management is generally called the second disaster. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. During, so there was a slave like fire here in 20, 2011. We had literally trailers and trailers and trailers of actual garbage that people donated, like right. filled with mouse poop, disgusting things, like gross. really gross things that people are like, try again, make, trying to be old couches, like, like just again, a it's a secondary disaster because now your logistics team, instead of like trying to focus on the actual disaster is trying to work on all this crap. Right. And as a person that's gone through it, like you said, there was an overwhelming uh, community support. That's what I experienced as well. And I think that the hardest thing is people being like, well, what do you need? And you're like, I don't know what I, I just lost everything. I'm not in the state where I could be like, well, we could use four forks. Like it's just, I'm not at that place. And so I had to tell people, you need to let me tell you how to help me and not just assume because like, I don't need another pair. I still, I do not need a pair of socks for the rest of my life. <laughs> we have so many socks. I'm not joking. 
joking. Socks were the overwhelming. I don't know if everybody read like the same article and like in a disaster, you forget socks, but so many pairs of socks. I genuinely actually don't know why. Uh, I can't help you with that one. It was just strange, but I love, I love how you phrase it that it's the second, it's the second disaster because like I said, not all help was helpful and everybody's trying to do stuff, but they're giving you stuff that you already have or stuff that you never needed in the first place. Right. And so no. it's hard as the person going through the crisis, unless you have training in this, right? Like you've been in firefights, you have training like you have to know like exactly what you need, right? When you're like, I don't know what, what I need, but I know I don't need more socks. That's, I know that as a yes. fact. Yeah. You hear about things in the news being like, oh my God, the government has turned down like little old granny, you know, trying to give them cookies. How dare they? And there's there's a reason behind that. We don't know if Granny washes her hands. <laughs> right. That's a fair point. Right? Um, like we're turning down people trying to give clothes. It's like, yes, yeah, we are, because we're giving them actual money to go buy the clothes they want, not just taking your old pair of pants that even you don't want. Right. So like you already had a disaster. Don't <laughs> don't inflict your fashion disaster on their actual disaster <laughs> so yeah anyone listen if you take nothing else please don't donate things donate money yeah. <laughs> Mon and money was by far the most helpful thing right so you can go and get stuff and you can stay at a hotel you can go out or like the last thing you want to do after that is like cook and do laundry like those are not those like mundane things that suck oh, they're not no. great after uh, a disaster no, absolutely. Anna, this was a fantastic episode. So what's going to happen next is we're going to jump over to Patreon. I'm going to ask you for a story in disaster management. It only exists behind the paywall at the $5 level on Patreon. That's how this show makes money is we put the cool stories behind a paywall. Anna, you work for Nate. If anybody is interested in this field, how do they how do they get into it? We have a diploma program. If you're in Canada, right now, currently it's not open for anyone internationally, so I'm sorry about that. But if you're in Canada, we um we do have a diploma in disaster and emergency management. It is a two-year program. We start in September. So it's you can check it up, check us out online on nate.ca, disaster and emergency management. So um I'm obviously a little bit biased, but we have the best program in Canada for a, a diploma start program to start. Uh, we'll be able to help you all the way along the way and we have a very high success rate on employ employable students afterwards and that's because we work with actual industry partners to make sure that we are providing students with the real life skills they need to be successful in this field if you're only just interested in uh, learning more about it maybe you don't know not sure if you want to take the program we have two courses uh, that are open study so that you can start your way uh, to learn more about disaster and emergency management as a profession through that so again nate.ca Awesome. All right, everybody. That's it for this episode of the show. Episode two. Next week, we have a, a lady coming on the show, Maggie, who's talking about leaving the Mormon church and all of the horrific things that happened on that route. So that should be a pretty interesting episode. And don't forget, as always, jump over to patreon.com for the story after the show and randykinglive.com if you have any interest in hiring me for any event for your business. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.